Zechariah. Zechariah was an old man. He felt old. He was old. His hands felt tremulous. He felt creaky and tweaky. And as he grabbed that box of incense and began carrying it inside of the temple, he noticed his age. He noticed his age because he'd done this many, many times, at least serve in the outside of the sanctuary. He was a priest, no less, but there was many priests. But he noticed his age because he thought, I'll bet you this would have been easier when I was younger. You see, Zechariah as a priest was a part of all of the group of people that managed all of the services and ceremonies and managed the facilities of the sanctuary, of the temple. There were lots of priests, 24 groups of priests, in fact, and of those 24 groups, one of those groups would serve two weeks per year, and so this was Zachariah's week. And so he was here at the sanctuary to do his duties, and it had just been just a couple of days earlier that Zachariah advanced in years at the pointy end of his time there serving the church, that lots had been cast And of the groups that were serving that particular week, the lot had been cast, a sort of die, a dice, had landed on him, and he was asked to serve in the function of the offering incense. He was the one that would serve the incense that particular week. Now, this was a very special function. Like I said, there was lots of priests. They each served one week a year, sometimes two, but you would only offer the incense once in your lifetime. And here was Zechariah. Some commentators say he was as much as 92 years old. And he hadn't had the best of luck. I imagine as he carried that box of incense into the sanctuary and arrived at the altar of incense, having been the only one tasked with this responsibility that particular day. He's alone now, and he could feel the age in his hips as he hoisted the box onto the table. He could feel the years of experience in his elbows and in his fingers as his arthritic, nimble fingers still began to move the packaging away from the pungent powders of the incense as he placed it on the altar of incense. You can imagine with me, can't you, as he leans over and he begins to open this package, something that he's very familiar with, yet never has he done in this way. He's heard of this from his friends, and I'm sure many, many decades younger told him, Zechariah, and when you get in there, Zechariah, you're going to want to use your shoulder to hoist the box up, and you're going to find the, the little candle on the left, and that's what you use to light it. All of this a memory, almost an informed knowledge, but never has it been his personal experience. He takes the incense. He places it in the receptacle. He grabs the candle and he moves the flame into the pile of the incense and immediately a pungent cloud of holy smoke begins to fill the room. Oh, this is as good as he thought it was going to be. Right, he'd heard about this from all of his friends, some of them way too young to have been chosen for this responsibility as far as he was concerned, but now he could do it. And he smelled the smoke 
and it fills the room and Zechariah feels blessed and he feels privileged and he feels lucky. He hadn't had a lot of luck in his life. It'd been many years in this job. Never once had he been promoted to high priest. Never once had he chosen to do this task. Never once, in fact, had he ever been blessed with children. Back in the temple, I imagine he got together with the other staff around the, the water cistern and they would grab a cup and they would talk about their lives and they would discuss what their children were up to. Well, he was in his 10th decade and, and he just kind of kept mum. He had a good wife, Elizabeth, and I guess you could say he was the luckiest thing that had happened to him, but here he was. But now everything seemed like it had been made right. His shoulders, once heavy with the burden of age, stood tall, and as the smoke filled the room, he saw the meaning that he'd studied in all of his years as a sanctuary scholar. He viewed this as the prayers, not only of himself, but of all the people that stood now outside of the sanctuary, feeling their prayers represented by his smoke. Blessed to be the only one to do this sacred, solemn act, he reveled in the solitary moment of the significance of his task. But it was in that solitary solemnness that suddenly he sensed a disturbance in the force of the room. He was not alone. He opens his eyes and even though the room is hazy and smoky and even though the room is, is, is obfuscated by this holy prayer scent, he looks throughout the room and he notices that there is now a being in the room and he looks to the right of the altar, Luke chapter 1 records, and he sees there a being that is clearly extraterrestrial. There is an inner luminescence that fills rays through the smoke. There is a, an extraterrestrial radiance coming from this being. Zachariah takes a step back. It's a nimble step back. He steadies himself on the furniture of the rest of the room to see exactly, to catch his bearings for what he is witnessing in the room. And it is clear that what he is experiencing is from another dimension. Zechariah waits what feels like an hour, but was probably more like a tenth of a second, until the bean opens their mouth and speaks and says this. Zechariah, behold, your prayers have been answered. Zechariah had prayed a lot of prayers in his lifetime, so it was not immediately clear which prayer was about to be answered. You can imagine his surprise when to his ears and to his EKG, he feels this news arrive at his ears that says, Zechariah, your wife will have a child and you will call him John. Every cell 
in Zechariah's 92-year-old frame immediately becomes transfixed with this news, no longer is he paying attention to the bioluminescent being in his presence. He is now rushing in his mind to the presence of his wife, thinking how he will share with her the news, my dear pensioning retiree loved one, you will soon be with child. Zechariah is taken aback And he doesn't really know how to take this news, whether even to believe this news, when the angel continues speaking. For I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to tell you this good news. There is authority in the news that has arrived in this moment, and Zechariah wipes his brow And doesn't know what to say. He is caught off guard. He is stunned in the smoke. You see, Zechariah is catching the significance of this moment. He gathers together. This is no being. He's identified himself as Gabriel. And he has told me he is from the presence of God. Zechariah thinks to himself, he is a scholar of the scriptures. Spent many of years studying the Bible and learning of the stories from the past. He knows that the last time an angel appeared to a holy man, that person was also named Zechariah. And so he stands here catching the significance of the word to the ancients and the word to the now, knowing that it's been a long time since a holy word from the presence of the Lord has been delivered to God's people. And Zechariah catches the moment. The miraculous John that he's told about would live a very special purpose. The angel goes on to say, and I'll put it on the screen for you, he tells him exactly this. Your son will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In this moment, Zechariah and by extension all of us listening in are catching a glimpse of what it truly means to be Adventists. In the literal sense of the word, this is the calling and commission for an Advent prophet. This prophesied arrival, also known as an Advent, was something every observant Jew had longed for. They'd been told about a Messiah that would come. They'd long desired for his arrival and they had prayed for his coming and now Zechariah was hearing that the arrival of the Messiah was imminent and the anticipation of that arrival would be arranged by Zechariah's own heir. John the Baptist was sent to preach in the sacred spirit of Elijah that the people might be prepared for Advent. My brothers and sisters, tomorrow begins the liturgical season of Advent. We put away the mashed potatoes and we put away the turkey decorations and the paper plates with gobblers go into the cabinet to wait for another year. Hopefully, 
Marshalls will have a sale and we might stack up the pile a little higher and we'll be ready for next year. But now we think in terms of Christmas. We're in the Advent season. And our thoughts begin to move towards scenes of mangers and wise men and of angels, of trees and of shepherds singing. And we arrive at this Advent season and we begin to reflect on what it all means. And we'd be well pressed to consider this question Are we any more prepared for the second Advent than God's chosen people were for the first? One inspired writer had these words. For more than a thousand years, the Jewish people had awaited the Savior's coming. Upon this event, they had rested their brightest hopes. In songs and prophecy and temple rite and household prayer, they had enshrined his name. And yet at his coming, they knew him not. They knew the right things and they believed the right things. They worshipped at the right places. And then somehow they had missed the moment. How could they have been ill-prepared for what seems so obvious to us in hindsight? Would we, those who literally call ourselves Adventists, not be appropriately concerned about whether we are prepared for the glorious coming of our Lord in the second Advent? Shouldn't we, those who embrace the three angels' task of preparing a world for the almighty advent, not be willing to consider whether we're adequately fulfilling our evangelistic responsibilities to prepare a world to meet the Lord. You see, in this advent season, shouldn't we, before the trees come out of the closet, full disclosure, mine's been out for about three or four weeks, don't judge. Shouldn't we, in this season, take a moment, just a second, to wonder whether or not we're prepared for this Advent any more so than they were for the first. But maybe this moment you might be thinking, maybe you're arriving at this place for the holiday season and you're here as a result of your visiting mom and dad or you're here to visit grandma and grandpa and you've come to this place and you hear these words and you say, Albert, I have no more responsibility to prepare anybody for the second Advent then does the rocks or the trees? I don't believe any of this stuff. Maybe you come at this place and you're only nominally an Adventist or maybe a Badventist. And maybe you're thinking that you're off the hook as you hear this charge. But hear me in this. John the Baptist was given a mission to prepare a people for the coming of God because it seems that everybody before then had been doing such a poor job of telling the beautiful truth about a beautiful God. It's possible that if you're only barely holding on to faith this morning, that if you're here simply because you want to make grandma and grandpa happy, that it's been because we, your friends and family, Your local church priests, preachers, and teachers have been doing such a poor job of telling the beautiful truths about a beautiful God. Maybe just like in the time of John the Baptist, God needs to raise up new voices that can lean into this need to tell beautiful truths about a beautiful God. And maybe, just maybe, God is going to need you to be a part of that telling. And maybe it's not an accident for why God brings this 
group of people to this place to hear this story as we prepare for Advent. So what would it look like for us as modern day John the Baptist to appropriately be preparing a people for the ultimate Advent? As we consider that commission, let me put the verse up on the screen for you and let's tackle that first phrase. It says that John the Baptist was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Elijah is probably the most famous prophet of the Old Testament. We know Elijah as that bravado voice that God put out among the people, and he went around preaching a reforming word to the people of Israel in a time of moral and ethical confusion. In doing so, he was preparing the way for somebody that was to come, Elisha, who had a double portion of the Spirit. You see, this echoes exactly what John the Baptist was doing. John was there to preach a reforming word to the church to prepare a place for somebody that would come after him with a double portion of the Spirit. And I would hope that we view ourselves as a people that have a similar commission to preach a reforming word to our church for one that will come after us with a double portion of the Spirit. If you think about what Elijah was doing during his time, his most famous story that we uh, might know was, would have been the story on the top of Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18. And in that story, Elijah is facing off with the priests of Baal as they form two different altars, and they are going back and forth to see who serves the true God, the omnipotent God, and he's doing so in confrontation with Ahab. Ahab was a Jew. These people were Jews. These people around the altars were Jews. Elijah was preaching to a people about idolatry and they were all Jews. This is not some kind of evangelistic campaign. He's not on the hinterlands of of Samaria and Judea. He is in his home tribe speaking to his people that have become distracted about the main thing by looking at the minor things of all of the idols surrounding the people of Israel. And Elijah speaks a reforming word to King Ahab, a Jew, Jezebel, a Jew. And he speaks to all of these people a hard word that they need to hear. John the Baptist does something very similar. When we find John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 after his birth, there's very few words recorded in Scripture that John the Baptist says that we actually know about. But the few that he says are strong, they're spicy. And so maybe we might look at this phase in John the Baptist's life and say, well, John the Baptist was acting as a preparatory force. We might even say that he gives us a model of how we are to act as a church. Preparation as reformation. John the Baptist was a reformer, and he gives a model for us that we need to be engaging in the act of reformation. Listen to what he says to people. John the, listen to what John the Baptist says to his own tribe. He says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Whoever has two tunics is to share it with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In another moment, he says, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Do not take money by force or false accusation. Be content with your wages. 
You see, further on in the passage, you find John the Baptist speaking a strong, authoritative word to King Herod. It would be his undoing. Remember, this is the same King Herod that slaughtered children when Jesus was born. King Herod, come to find out, is a Jew. John the Baptist is speaking a reforming word to his community that has forgotten what it means to live out the values of the Bible. The values that he'd grown up with, the values that are taught throughout the Jewish scriptures. And John the Baptist begins to reform the people. He speaks to the temple guards. He speaks to the temple officials. He speaks to the temple teachers, the priests, He speaks to all of these groups of people a reforming word because in this time they'd forgotten. And he speaks to King Herod a reforming word because he, a Jew, has forgotten. You see, in this time, God needed a voice to wake the world up in anticipation for the arrival of his Holy Spirit that was to change everything around. And as I begin to think of us, and I begin to think in terms of preparation, preparation as reformation in the style of Elijah and John the Baptist, I ask the question, are we as Seventh-day Adventists, are we as Christians in general, as committed to reformation as it seems that the prophets of old and the lineage of this preparatory movement calls us to be engaged. Are we as committed to reformation? You see, when we use the word reformation, oftentimes our thoughts immediately go to a place in time. Goes to a person. It goes to a particular door where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses. And we say, well, that was the reformation. We celebrated it a couple years ago. I had a friend that even got into the robes. It's done. We took care of it. We celebrated it. You see, but reformation didn't just happen with Martin Luther. That wasn't, Reformation isn't an event. Reformation was happening long before Martin Luther. You think of Wycliffe and Huss and Zwingli. You think of people throughout Christian history on back to the patristic age of people that were engaging in reforming the church throughout time. And people after Martin Luther, people like Zinzendorf and John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Finney. You see, the church doesn't engage with reformation as an event. It engages with with reformation as a calling, as a responsibility for those of us interested in preparing a people to meet the Lord. There's a phrase that started to become popular, mainly in uh, mainline Protestantism a couple of centuries ago, that really captivates this idea. And I am remiss to understand why this phrase is not more popular in our own tradition. Let me put this phrase on screen for you. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. You see, with very limited knowledge, we could figure that out pretty quickly. We've heard a preacher or two say ecclesia, that's church. Reformata, that means reformed. Semper, we know semper fi. Semper Reformanda. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. You see, we as a church are most comfortable stopping at the beginning halfway point of that phrase. And we say, well, we believe in the Reformation. We celebrate it every 500 years. And we agree that it was an important thing. Martin Luther took care of it. We continue in his shadow. 
Ecclesia Reformata, it was reformed. However, if we believe the prophets and if we believe that God's prophetic spirit continues to move upon the church and if we choose to accept the calling for us as modern John the Baptist with a prophetic responsibility, we keep moving through the phrase and we say, Semper Reformanda. Reformation is not an event. Reformation didn't happen. Reformation occurs and reformation continues. We are always reforming. You see, Elijah arrives at a place in time where King Ahab has taken upon himself nationalistic responsibilities to protect the safety of the people, and he has taken upon himself the, the opportunity to build up the treasure troves to take care of the fiscal outlook of the people of Israel. And John the Baptist comes into a very similar time. King Herod, forming a client state, of the empire, he also, a Jew, has taken it upon himself the responsibility to build up the nationalistic safety guards, the nationalistic treasure troves for the people of Israel. They have blurred the lines between their prophetic responsibility with their patriotistic calling and desires. And John the Baptist, Baptist arrives and he says, this is wrong, and he begins to call out the officials, the priests, and the teachers, and the guards. You see, this is normal in any institution. If you look at the institution and the blueprint of any organization and you begin to look at its story, it wasn't always this complicated. King Herod didn't have to exist. If you go back all the way through the kings of scripture, you arrive at a place where the God of heaven said, don't take a king, it will only lead to misery. You don't want a king. Don't go the route of nations and officials and keep me as your leader. But you see, what happens is that any good thing begins as a revolution. It begins as a reformation and a reformation becomes a movement and a movement becomes an organization and an organization becomes an institution and an institution becomes a corporation and it becomes calcified and nearly enable to adjust and adapt to the nimble moves of the Holy Spirit. And in the same way that Elijah points a bony, holy finger at King Ahab and says, you killed Namath for that field and you're responsible, Ahab. And in the same way that John the Baptist points an authoritatively holy finger at Herod and says, don't you marry your sister, you needed to hear it from me, apparently. We also need to accept our reforming prophetic voice to always be concerned about how we as a reformation revolution devolve into an institution that becomes a corporation and then we take upon ourselves the same kinds of calcified burdens that the system had acquired in that time. You see, when the calcified system takes on the same kinds of official corporate burdens of that time, we lose the nimbleness to respond to the call of the Spirit. We become more interested in preserving the future of the corporation than we become in preserving the nimbleness of a movement. 
And we stand now at hundreds of years after the beginning of our own little tribe here. And we have to answer, we have to ask the question, was a prophetic voice given to us in the 1800s and never since? Are we not called now in the year 2019, days away from 2020, to not also have a responsibility to prophetically call our institutions back to what God might have intended through Reformation and Revolution years ago? Do not we as modern Christians, as modern people at the far line of this Reformation line also have a responsibility to call our church in areas where we see strain back to a place of surrender and humble following of Jesus Christ. You see, when we begin to look at the example of John the Baptist, we see something that is countercultural. It's not just simply about reformation as a, as a result of preparation. We can also say that in the next passage, it's reformation as liberation. Look at this next phrase in the passage. He says, John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. You see, it is normal for fathers to have stilted relationships with their children. It's common. I wouldn't say it's natural because God didn't design us to naturally have stilted relationships with anybody. But we could say it's normal. Anybody who has a dad maybe understands a tiny bit. It is normal for us to disobey the wisdom of God, but it is not natural for us to turn our backs on the wise instructions God has given us for our very own benefit. What is normal is rarely natural. And oftentimes we're in chains to the normal and God desires us to have freedom in the natural things that he wants for us. Preparation as liberation. You see, captivity to sin is normal, but is not God's natural plan. John's opening line when he begins his ministry, when Jesus comes into his presence, John's opening line is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Liberation of the normal to the natural is exactly the work God desires for us to do as we prepare for his second advent. There's a remarkably poignant scene in Revelation chapter 6 where a people, as they stand in the presence of the advent of God, instead turn and cry out for rocks to crush them because they can't bear to see God's face. That is not a people that are free. That is a people that are captive to all kinds of fears and that is people that have believed all kinds of lies about who God is. Because if you know who God is, you don't run for the rocks, you run for the Redeemer and you say, here I am. It was lies that sent Adam and Eve to hide. It's truth that sends the prodigal son into the arms of the father because he has been liberated from the lies that he'd believed about his dad. It was normal to believe that his father wanted vengeance, but it's natural for us to be loved with an incomprehensible love beyond anything that we can imagine by our creator that says, come home. Oh, it's a natural love that runs the universe. God is love. 
and his community will be thread through with love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Love is natural, but it isn't very normal in this day and age. And we find in this passage a calling for people to prepare by reforming what they have access to, by reforming the communities that they have access to, and by liberating a world who's believed lies and dishonest takes on who God is. We have an opportunity here as we enter into Advent in the next few hours to enter into Advent prepared. Because here's the truth about Advent. Advent happens. It happens. Elijah didn't conjure the arrival of the Messiah. John the Baptist didn't conjure the arrival of baby Jesus. He prepared for it. We won't conjure or cause the arrival of God in his second advent. We will either be prepared or we won't. My wife and I have been the last couple of weeks enjoying watching the series of Netflix's The Crown. Anyone? Just us. And there's a beautiful line near the end of the series where Prince Edward, formerly King Edward in exile, he's coughing, he's ending his life, and he says to Queen Elizabeth, the crown always finds a way. The crown always finds the right head. You see, the crown was never owned by anybody in the royal family. You had to fit a particular set of criteria for the crown to land on your head. You didn't own it. The monarchy was bigger than one family, and it changes between lines of family depending on the criteria that's met or not met. You see, we don't own the advent of Jesus Christ as Adventists. The advent will happen, and we will either be in a position to prophetically prepare the world with a reforming, liberating word, or the crown will pass on because the crown always finds the right people. The advent happens. The advent will happen. Will we as Adventists be about our Father's, word, uh, be about our father's work preparing and being prepared to let our world know about the beautiful truths about our beautiful soon coming God. Amen.